You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and a big thanks to uh, you and everyone here coming together uh, around the beauty, truth and relevance of Jesus. I want to thank Harry for leading us in worship and Bianca and Carmen who've just done a world of work to bring us together to make today possible. So we can thank the Lord for them. Uh, So good to be with you. Uh, I thought to set the stage for this message, I'd share with you the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. By show of hands, who knows the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? A lot of people know him as the Christian leader who plotted the assassination of Adolf Hitler. But of course, there is so much more to this man's story. Uh, Born in 1904 in Germany, he was one of eight kids. And at the age of 12, announced to, the, announced to the family dinner table that he wanted to be a theologian. He had a great hunger for God's Word. And at 21, he got his doctorate in uh, theology before moving to Spain uh, to serve as a Christian minister. He then moves to New York. And it's in New York that he meets and becomes good friends with an African-American man named Franklin Fisher. And Franklin Fisher invites Bonhoeffer to attend his church in Harlem. And so there in Harlem is this German studious theologian experiencing for the very first time fiery preaching. And he's witnessing a church community that's not just going through the motions, but is truly alive in their faith for Jesus. And his experience at this church changes him. It meets him in a deep and transformative way, so much so that when he comes back to Germany, Bonhoeffer is a changed man. But Bonhoeffer is not the only person who has changed. Germany has also changed. When Bonhoeffer left Germany, the Nazi party was a small, somewhat insignificant political party. But when he returns, they're one of the most dominant voices. And this spelled bad news for the German people, but also bad news for the church. Hitler and his men were bullying Christians and church leaders to do things that stood against the gospel. They were excommunicating Jewish Christians. They were ripping out parts of the Bible that they felt were too Jewish. Some were even using the pulpit to declare that Hitler was their new Messiah. But Bonhoeffer 
and a faithful few took a stand and said, no. He was public in his stance for what is true, what is right. And he begins to form an underground seminary at a rural town in Finkelwater. Uh, His vision to raise up an army of Christian leaders, of disciples who would gather around the radical call of life in Jesus. 67 students gathered together in Finkelwater. 67 students came to unite themselves together around the sacred practices of prayer, confession, studying God's work and devotion to the way of Jesus. This was his response to the darkness that they were experiencing. And it was life together in the truest sense. It was a rule of life governed by the way of Jesus. And it was so uh, intense that people looking on were suspicious of what they were doing. Some said it was too extreme. In fact, in Marsha's biography on Bonhoeffer, he tells the story of one of Bonhoeffer's friends who, who came to Bonhoeffer to share his concerns, a guy named William Niesel. And he comes to Bonhoeffer because he's concerned by the intensity of their discipleship. And how does Bonhoeffer respond? Bonhoeffer takes his friend in a little rowboat They go across the river up to an open clearing and they look over to a German airfield where they can see Hitler's men scurrying about. He points out to them the the, the severity of their devotion, a devotion and discipleship of cruelty in Bonhoeffer's words. And then he turns to his friend and says something to his friend that his friend never, ever forgot. He said, Bonhoeffer says to him, what we're doing at the seminary has to be stronger than what Hitler's doing in forming his army. We have to raise up a generation of Christians whose formation is stronger than that of the Third Reich. This, the underground seminary, has to be more powerful than that. This morning we are continuing the vine the trellis and the crow, a seven-week journey to equip, strengthen and encourage all who are in Jesus. It's a, it's a vision to help us not only shine as the people of God, but to stand strong in the midst of darkness and all that would seek to pull us away from Christ. We want to be a community whose love is stronger than the hate, a community where truth is stronger than the lies, a community whose faith is stronger than the fear. In the opening week, we looked at John chapter 15 and the beautiful vision of a vine bearing fruit and the call that we who are in Jesus are made to flourish in Him. But we've also discovered that this life of flourishing doesn't happen by accident. We need a trellis to support our life in Jesus. We need rhythms and practices to help us abide in Jesus. And so already we've we've looked at some of those disciplines. We've looked at the importance of self-examination and spiritual encouragement. We've looked at self-denial and uh, spiritual delight. This morning, I want to spend a few minutes with you talking about the biblical priority, the way of Jesus, the importance of building into your rule of life, 
strategic withdrawal and gospel engagement. For City on a Hill, we want to be a people that know and practice the importance of strategic withdrawal and gospel engagement. So this sermon is going to come in two parts. We're going to begin with strategic withdrawal. What do I mean when I talk about strategic withdrawal? Here's a definition that I pen for our staff, which will come on up. Strategic withdrawal in the Christian life is an intentional and purposeful endeavour to temporarily disengage from the distractions of life to dwell in God's presence. In drawing deeply from His well of life and grace, we seek clarity, we renew energy, and we find divine vision for the journey ahead. So strategic withdrawal is never detachment from God. It's not about escaping the body. It's an invitation to dive deep into the well of God's goodness and grace. And and why is this going to be crucial for your life and growth in Jesus? Well, in part, it's about clarity. It's about finding clarity. By show of hands, who's had to make a difficult decision in the last few years? Right? Keep keep your hand raised if you were wrestling through that, trying to seek the truth in that. Here's something of comfort for you. Jesus wrestled with big decisions in his life. I think for a moment about Jesus uh, electing the 12 disciples. That's a big decision. A lot of consequences. How did he go about choosing the 12 disciples? Well, the Bible says this. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. Jesus, fully God, fully man, reveals to us all the importance of bringing every decision to the Lord in prayer. So in withdrawing and going deep with God, we seek His will, we seek clarity. We also seek to renew our energy, right? So humans, we're a little bit like cars. Some of us are fast and zippy like a Ferrari. Others are slow and sluggish like, I don't know, a Kia Carnival or something like that. But we all alike need what? Fuel. That's a very obvious point when it comes to a car, but something that we often overlook when it comes to our own bodies, our own lives. Uh, There's a great book called Soul Keeping by John Ortberg, where he talks about a conversation with his mentor, Dallas Willard, and the distinction that Willard made between a busy life and a hurried life. Need to know the difference between a busy life and a hurried life. Listen to this great insight. He says, being busy is an outward condition, a condition of the body. It occurs when we have many things to do. Busyness is inevitable in a modern culture. Being hurried is an inner condition, a condition of the soul. It means to be so preoccupied with myself and my life that I'm unable to be what? Fully present with God, with myself and with other people. I'm unable to occupy the present moment. Busyness migrates to hurry when we let it squeeze God out of our lives. I cannot live in the kingdom of God with a hurried soul. I cannot rest in God with a hurried soul. So what is the remedy for a restless soul? Willard says, 
You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now, there is a lot of things that we can do to slow down in life. Who likes a slow walk in nature? Yeah, a lot of hands there. Who enjoys a morning coffee and a good book? Yep. Uh, Who enjoys working in the garden or making something in the shed? Absolutely. Who enjoys a uh, family feast from KFC? There we go. My people. A lot of great things that you can build into your rule of life to help you slow down. But listen to this. When it comes to your soul and the deep rest that your soul needs, I'm convinced and I'm coming to realize that the ultimate answer is found in God Himself. So take the reading that we heard from Luke 5. Here we hear of Jesus' active ministry, healing a man with leprosy and others coming to him to heal him and to minister. He's very active in that way and a point we'll come to later. He's very active. But notice also what Luke says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Active with people, but often withdrew. Uh, Another text, which really quite striking in, in Mark chapter one. In Mark chapter one, we, we hear of this very intense ministry schedule for Jesus. He's preaching and teaching and he's preaching and teaching all day long. And then he comes home at the end of a long day of preaching and teaching. And Mark tells us that the town around him brought all who were sick and oppressed to him, right? And what does Jesus do? He doesn't lock the door and say, hey, come back tomorrow. No, he opens them in, pours a tea, cup of coffee and sits with them and he's praying with them and he's loving them and he's healing people and he's pastoring people. It's beautiful. And that's not what strikes me most. What strikes me most about this section in Mark 1 is what happens next. Because the very next day, the moment where you feel that Jesus has most certainly earned a sleep in, (laughs) Mark says this, He says, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he, what? He prayed. Why does Jesus do that? After such a, why not kick your feet up, have a rest, take it easy. Why does he get up while it's dark, go to a desolate place and pray? Because Jesus knew that the ultimate rest, the deep rest that he ultimately needed was going to come from his heavenly Father. Now, please, please, please don't mishear me. I am not saying sleep is bad. Right? I'm not saying sleep is bad. And you'll be thankful that there's passages in John, for example, where we hear of Jesus sleeping on a boat. Right, And that's just awesome for at least two reasons. The fact that Jesus sleeps on a boat is awesome for two reasons. Number one, it tells us He was human. Second of all, it tells us that midday naps are biblical. Luke Nelson, you're welcome. <laughs> right, so, so really seriously, sleep is really, and we can talk a lot about sleep and you should have sleep in your rule of life. Very practically important. But the point that we see in the rhythm of Jesus is that alongside His sleep, He knew the power and the renewing strength of being in God's presence. Love, love this text from Isaiah. It was just such a glorious one to many of us during COVID. Isaiah says this, Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait, what? 
For the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So what is that waiting on the Lord looking like in your life right now? What adjustments do you need to make in your rhythm to ensure that you have those times of strategic withdrawal? It could be like Jesus that you resolve in your heart right now to build one day a week, one day a month where you get up early when it's dark and you find that desolate place and you go to God in prayer. It could be that you find a couple of mates and you say, hey, you know what, once a week, why don't we go grab a drink, we'll go to the pub and let's just retreat from everything and just talk about our faith and pray for one another. It could be in in your gospel community, you say, you know what, what about one weekend? We go away and and, and we get away and we we have a a few days of extended prayer and extended reading and we fast and we, we do that. And we ask the Lord to meet us in a deep, renewing kind of way. Right, this is not strategic withdrawal. Time with the Lord is not icing on the cake of your Christianity. This is core to who we are. And listen, this call for strategic withdrawal should not only determine uh, the habits that we should start, but some practices that we should stop. If you're committed to going deep with the Lord, you not only want to start a few things, you need to stop some things. For example, and we could talk about a lot of things here, but we all know, don't we, the temptation of an iPhone. For some of us in this room, you know, like, uh, don't get me wrong, iPhones, I've got one, they're helpful, they're efficient. But for some of you, you know that for you, it's a temptation to look at some things you shouldn't look at. For some of you, you know, it's it's a gateway to surveying everybody else's holiday pics and just getting torn apart by by what you don't have and you spiral in self-condemnation. For some of you, it's just jumping into that next online sale and, and, and that constant need to kind of try and fill the tank by getting that something more. For a lot of us, let's be honest, it's just a constant distraction. You know that you can be in a room with people you care about and yet distracted by that next buzz, that next message, that next text message. Right? We're tweeting, but we're not thinking. We're texting, but we're not talking. We're scrolling, but we're not praying. I love this word by John Piper. He says, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. What's it going to look like in your life to dethrone the gods of the digital age? Now, I'm not suggesting you put your iPhone in a blender. You could do that. But maybe you could have a digital detox. Maybe you resolve that when you're going to go out with a few friends that you leave your iPhone at home or you turn your phone off when you come to church, right? There are a lot of things that we can do to ensure that when we go to God, we're going deep and we are present. One final thing before we move to the next point. Um, The moment you take this seriously, what we're talking about, the moment you say, you know, I'm going to build into my life habits and rhythms to go deep with God, to set it. The moment you commit to do that, you need to know that it's it's not always going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be very, very hard. It's not going to happen by accident. Right, as Carson, you know, famously said, none of us drift towards holiness. We won't drift towards, right? 
It's not going to happen by accident. Um, We've called this series The Vine, The Trellis and The Crow for a reason. Because all through the Bible, what do we see? We see the evil one seeking to swoop on in and steal from you everything that matters. And the one, listen, the one thing that the evil one wants to take from you more than anything else is not ultimately your career or your study or this and that. Ultimately, what the devil wants to steal from you more than anything else is your time with the Lord. He wants to go after that sacred place, that holy space. He wants to steal from you the life that you're made to know in God. Think about Luke chapter 4 and Jesus' moment of strategic withdrawal in the desert. 40 days of fasting and prayer, 40 days of spiritual formation, preparing Him for what was to come. Was it easy? No. For Jesus, that retreating was war. Sometimes when people hear about spiritual retreats, they imagine, I don't know, hot springs in Mornington, you know, nice comfy white robes, music by Enya, something like that. Sometimes there can be tranquility and peace. Sometimes you got to tool up and be ready for war. A couple of weeks ago, I heard this interesting uh, insight about eagles, you know, such a dominant, beautiful. Uh, the, uh, the only uh, bird to attack an eagle is the crow. And interestingly, the way the crow attacks an eagle is it jumps on its back and begins like gnawing at its neck. And how does an eagle deal with that? Interestingly, it doesn't fight it in the same way. It doesn't try and fight back, claw back. Do you know what an eagle does? An eagle just opens its wings and soars higher. Because the higher it gets, the less the crow is able to breathe. And so eventually it gets so high in the sky that the crow just falls off. Might I suggest, Christian brother and sister, that we are made to soar in the heavens of God. And that when life is pressing against you, when you feel there is spiritual attack, when the crow is swooping on in and attacking you, That's a time to go deep in God. That's a time to open those wings and pursue Him. Enjoy God, pursue God, practice the presence of God in your life. That's the first point. The second is this. City on a Hill, we're called to strategically withdraw. We're also called to gospel engagement. We see in the life of Jesus, and again, we're always wanting to see the life of Jesus. We see Him retreat in those quiet places, but we also see Jesus entering on in. We also see Jesus serving people, caring for people, right? He knew the value of retreating and dwelling in God's presence. But listen, it was always a filling in for a pouring out. And in your life, you are going to need a filling in, a deep presence of God in your life that you may then pour yourself out for him. And I wanted to underscore that because I think there has been a tendency throughout Christian history for some Christians to consider strategic withdrawal as their license to cut themselves off from the world and detach from any responsibility and just live their own Christian life away from everybody else. 
right? We see that throughout history. And a great example of that, an extreme one, but an example of that comes from a Christian named Simeon the Stylite. Anyone heard of him? <laughs> Two of us, great. So he's this guy, he's a serious, really serious guy. He's born in the fourth century. He actually got kicked out of a monastery when he was 16 years old for being too disciplined. He was too in, intense for everyone that they kicked him out. And so he then moves to a hut by himself for complete seclusion for 18 months. And when, that, when he got tired of the hut, uh, he upgrades to a cave. And he goes and pursues life of seclusion in a cave. But you know what happens is people kept coming to see him. They were curious about this guy. They wanted to learn about Jesus, learn about life. And he got so fed up with people knocking at the door of his cave because he just wanted to live by himself. That what did he do? He established for himself a small platform to sit on a pole that was 10 foot high in the sky, right? I think we've got a, yeah, that's a selfie from the fourth century. I know the rental market is pretty intense at the moment. So he actually has this true story. He has this pulley system and people would put bread and water and I don't know, some grapes, whatever. <laughs> and he's like pulls it up and, that, and that's how he survived. He, no one would talk to him. In fact, he got so popular that they had to upgrade him to a 50-foot pole with walls around it because Christians and other people kept talking to him and had needs and he didn't have time for that. He wanted to pursue this life of seclusion and prayer and contemplation all by himself. No distractions, no people, right? Do we have any introverts here today? <laughs> yeah, this is you're like, this is awesome guy. Keep going, preach it. Do you know how long Simeon stood, sat, prayed on this thing? 37 years, Luke. 37 years. Years and the church went nuts. They loved it. They thought, oh, he's so holy. He was literally a rock star in his day. You can look this up. They, they, they made him a saint. Oh, wow, what an amazing guy. And to me, I mean, maybe you can tell by my tone, it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts because anyone who reads the Bible for themselves can see that Christians are not called to a life of complete detachment and withdrawal from the world. We are called to follow Jesus. And in Jesus, we see Him entering on in. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then John jumps down and he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in Greek, that dwelling among us is he tabernacled, he, he pitched his tent. If you think of a caravan park and the family, that's Jesus. He's, he's entering on in. And you see it all through his life. The Pharisees were what? The separatists. I don't hang out with drunks and sinners and tax collectors. Where's Jesus? Hanging out with drunks, tax collectors and sinners. John 4, woman at the well. Right, uh, Matthew the tax collector, Zacchaeus, having home, he's there. And that doesn't even mentioning his prayers and his caring for people and healing of people. He entered in. He gave his time. He gave his, he gave his prayers. He gave his counsel. He gave his life. Oh, he, he gave everything. He entered all the way in. And so what is the call for us? Sit on a pole in the clouds? Hide away in a holy huddle? No, Jesus prayed, as the Father sends me, so I send them. The Great Commission, go. 
make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And behold, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Could you imagine if the disciples ignored that command? Could you imagine if they invested in a nice pole and sat on it for the next 37 years of their life? Listen, the reason I get passionate about Jesus' call to engage our world is because while old mate Simeon is up on his cloud and getting all that adulation and praise for being so holy, there were thousands of people below sinking in their own sin and in their own death. And I was one of those people. I was one of the billion people today who was sinking in my own sin and my own death. And I get the sovereignty of God. Absolutely, I believe in the sovereignty of God. But the only reason within that that I am here today is because somebody was courageous enough to get off their pole and to extend a hand of grace. Someone was courageous enough to help me hear the good news of the gospel. My good mate's sister uh, was, was there to drive the opposite direction to pick me up so I could go to church. She was there on the other side of the phone to answer my questions. I, I'm here under the sovereignty of God because someone was willing to engage me with the gospel. And listen, you have your own story, don't you? I'm sure that right now, as you think back in your life, you could think of at least somebody who got off the pole to help you. Could have been a preacher at a conference, could have been your mama, could have been your dad, could have been a brother, could have been a teacher at school, could have been a youth minister. Someone, by the grace of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, was willing to meet you and love you and care for you and help you see the good news of the gospel. And guess what? The baton is now in your hands. City on a hill, this is our time. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses and this is our time to enter all the way in, to pour ourselves out and to make that a priority now. I've heard it said that there are two types of people in this world. There are people who say one day, one day I'll share my faith with that mate at work. One day I'll invite that friend to church. One day I'll start praying. A lot of one day type people. But then there are people who say, you know what? Today is day one. Today is day one. I'm going to take my call and my faith in Jesus seriously. Today is the day that I want to share this good news with my friends and with my family to go where Jesus goes. This is the heartbeat of our church. City on a Hill, we are not a country club. We're not a gathering just for like-minded people. Community is important. Studying the Bible is important. Singing songs for Jesus is important. But the heart of our DNA, the heart of who we are, is a heartbeat of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Am I saying you should plant a church? Not necessarily. Am I saying you should sell up your possessions and become a missionary overseas? Not necessarily. But let me ask, are you living a life that only makes sense in light of the gospel of Jesus? 
Are you practicing a life that only makes sense in light of eternity? Are you doing what you can to to know Jesus, go deep with him, but also to make Jesus known? So I'm so encouraged by Ben and Suja today. Um, So wonderful to see, you know, we got to journey with these guys while they're in Melbourne and just so encouraged to see them take this massive step of faith. Um, It's not easy moving to a new place. It's not easy um, moving out of different schools into new schools and changing work and building new relationships. It's not easy to do any of that, but what I love is that they know that we're not made for an easy life. We're made for a courageous life, a bold life, a life of knowing Christ and making Christ known. That's what I love about this church. You know, this church began with nine, almost 10 people. Now it's nine, almost 10 churches. I love what God is doing. I mean, it just blows my mind to think about what all the Lord has done at Sidon Hill Geelong and Melbourne West. When I think of Pete breaking uh, bread in Whittington, uh, when I think of Louis and the team gathering outside because they can, praise God. Keep going. The story of God's grace is not yet finished. Keep going. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep praying for that unbelieving friend. Keep serving. Keep going deep with God, finding the renewal and strength of His Spirit that you may pour yourselves out for others. Why don't we stand and go to the Lord now in prayer? Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. And we just want to take a posture right now to uh, receive all that you have for us. I think of the men and women and children gathered here today that you know and you love and you care about. Would you fill us now by your Holy Spirit in this unique time that we have to gather together as your people? Thank you for the goodness of the gospel that heralds there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we just receive your forgiveness and your mercy. And we pray that you give us everything we need to be all that you have called us to be. And we think in our mind's eye right now of the people in our own lives, that neighbour down the road who doesn't yet know Jesus, that family friend who doesn't yet know Jesus. Father, we just want to lift up them in our mind's eye right now and say, Lord, would you help us to reach them, to love them, to serve them? Give us the boldness we need, the love that we need to know Jesus and to make Him known. Lord, we rejoice in the good news of the Gospel. Help us, Lord God, not just to know it, but indeed to live it. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said with one super loud voice. Amen. We're going to sing. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.